You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hedges on the phone. Kyle, how are you doing today? Doing good, Matt. Good. Enjoying this cool weather. This is nice change. Oh man, I mean it. It is uh, fantastic to be able to get outside, whether you're hunting, whether you're working, and just not feel like it's an immediate sweat and you're wiping that off your brow. It's just cool in the mornings, like sweatshirt temperature, and then quickly getting into just a nice, comfortable short sleeve and. It, I love it. Late September, man. You can't beat this for late September. Yeah, no, it's pretty awesome. I'm sure it won't last, but it's pretty <laughs> awesome at the moment. <laughs> we'll enjoy it while we can. Yeah, but yeah, right. no, it's, it, you're you're probably exactly right. It's still Southern Missouri. I mean, we can't get too excited. It's gonna nope. it's gonna heat back up at some point. That's right. Well, I uh, certainly appreciate your your time today. Um, you know, one one thing that. I think as as we've done so many different podcasts um, in the last couple of years, we're finding ourselves needing to go back and almost compartmentalize a lot of the recommendations, discussions, and everything that we've had through various podcasts in the past. Um, it's It's important to make sure that what message we're trying to convey is there in a, in a digestible format. And so I'm not going to call this necessarily a series, but for the next couple weeks or across the next 
month or so, um, listeners, there will be a pros and cons type podcast that you're going to hear. So we're pretty much splitting up this topic between, um, you know, Adam, myself, Frank, and Kyle. We're all going to kind of mix in uh, different different points of views. But what we're doing is this pros and cons list of what do you do? How do you evaluate if you have pasture land on your recreational property? What value does it bring? What are the pros and cons of that? How should we basically understand what to do with pasture ground on recreational property? And then in addition, another week is going to be pros and cons of having timber on your property. And then another week is pros and cons of having crop ground on your property. So it's it's going to seem very basic from the title, but there's a lot of good meat and potatoes discussion to be had within these. And and I think a lot of it um, will kind of get their mind wrapped around, okay, I previously thought that that was a negative, or I previously thought that that was so good, but I think that the answers and the discussion is really going to kind of bring some things to light that obviously most people don't talk about, um, but but we're here to discuss them. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked several times about, you know, for today we're going to talk about, about pastures on people's property, and we've talked about grazing a lot, but I, this is just diving deeper into, you know, not necessarily grazing regimes, but mm-hmm. obviously if we're grazing, it's it's going to be on pasture ground for the most part. So it's just picking that apart, maybe fine with a fine tooth comb here, trying to get down to the nitty gritty of because it's not just all the same. Um, there's different kinds of pastures. There's different benefits and and negative side. I mean, it's not all rainbows and unicorns Is out it? there. Um, <laughs> so. So we're going to cover both the pros and the cons, um, it, and that's fine. It's people. Maybe it'll help people understand whether they're looking into property or they already have it and kind of think, well, that's a bunch of wasted space. Well, not necessarily. There's some things we can do, but yes, um, yeah. I think it's. I think it opens. The, hopefully, it'll open some people's eyes to what they get the most out of yes yeah. the pasture ground or the cropland or whatever. Um, and, and make it work in their favor for deer hunting or, or whatever they're after, you know, turkey hunting or, or whatever. Certainly, certainly. Um, before we jump in, let's give a quick shout out to people who make this podcast possible with Vortex Optics. Guys, if you've not outfitted yourself for the fall, go to vortexoptics.com. And if you're just looking for some sweet apparel, they've got a apparel line, uh, Vortex Wear. Go there, use the code LEGACY20 at checkout to get 20% off of your Vortex wear. All right, Kyle. So I'm just going to open this thing up and let you run with it regarding pastures and kind of start us from the top. Um, And we're going to get into the nitty gritty, but this is the conversation can go and, and basically why are split Real quickly, when we start just mentioning the name pastures and the the overall umbrella topic is pastures, right? But there's so many nooks and crannies that we can get into that I, I feel like many recreational hunters, they only look at that umbrella and, and, and it's just lumped into pastures. And as soon as they think pasture ground, they think cattle and they think no benefit to wildlife 
waste. Or they they only have that experience of pastures and they only see wildlife in pasture ground if they're in very poor quality habitat. Because maybe, maybe it's this heavy timber area and when they see deer frequently, because they can see a long ways, it's in pasture ground. So we, we really need just to start from the very top and, and go back to, okay, once we determine and say the word pasture, where does the conversation go from there? So take it away. Yeah, so let's first define it, and it's, it's of course, broken um, two distinct pasture types, at least in in North America. So kind of from where we're at, kind of Kansas East, uh, Missouri East, um, typically most pasture situations are going to be non-native. Now, some of that's going to be cool season. Mm-hmm. Some of it's going to be warm season. So yep. we're talking fescue um, would be a cool season non-native. Um, Bahia grass, Bermuda grass, those are warm seasons, but yep. those are still you know, not made. Those are introduced grasses, turf type grasses. Um, so there's a distinct difference there versus native pasture ground. And honestly, that's more common, say from, from Missouri West. So mm-hmm. Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska. Um, and then of course, owl out West is mostly native pasture land. Um, honestly, those folks would call it range land. So, right. You almost can think about that as rangeland is typically native stuff. Not that there isn't non-native. There's fescue all across Kansas, but there's also a lot of native um, stuff that's never been plowed, and but they're grazing it. Um, they're utilizing it as pasture. So those two separations are important because the pros and cons, there's a lot more we can do with native pastures. There's a lot. They're grazed differently. Um, the residual stubble height that needs to be left behind for native to be sustainable year to year, they can't be grazed as close to the ground is what I'm getting at. You can't graze it down to a pool table every year Yep. where, where a lot of these non-natives you can. So right off the bat, um, the, the pros and cons, of course, we here in land and legacy always preach natives, right? So clearly <laughs> when given the choice, we're going to favor native pasture over non-native pasture because it's it's supposed to be here so right off the bat it gets you know a few extra stars um in our in our thinking or in our rating um being superior so that's i I would say if you look at if you if you take okay i got a venn diagram picturing in my head right i've got native pasture and then on one circle the left circle and on the right circle i've got benefit to wildlife. There's a lot of overlap in the center. Then when I compare that to, let's say, introduced grasses of whether it's cool season or really warm season, and I do the same thing. So I've got Bermuda on the left, and i got wildlife benefit on the right. There's not much middle ground that overlaps there. So if you're trying to do a multi-use property where you have both cattle and wildlife emphasis on the property which we work a lot of um that's that's a very common deal that's honestly why we're talking about this topic going into that a little bit deeper it's well there's a there's more overlap from the native side but from a producer side in a lot of different regions 
of the country that we cover a, a stronger emphasis or more pasture ground based on some of the qualities of the grasses, such as fescue, you can get more time or out of the year where you're grazing it. So you need this balance back and forth if they're that multi-use property because some have more benefit to wildlife, some others don't. But you need to be able to still support cattle if that's your intent on having an income, let's say, on a recreational property. So I just wanted to have people think about that like in, in a, okay, what's the what's the shared value here between warm seasons or, or I should say native pastures versus introduced non-native pastures? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to each their own. Everybody has their um, situation on their farm and, mm-hmm. and we see it all the time. We, we go to farms that some people are like, hey, I, you know, this – this grazing operation, maybe it's their cows, maybe it's not, maybe they're renting it, but we see it all the time where they're like, Hey, this is not negotiable. I mean, yep, yep. you can, you can tell me some things I can do to improve deer movement or deer use of these pastures. But I still got to have it, but I am hundred percent going to stay in the cattle business because that's making my payment on this farm or mm-hmm. whatever. And that's fine. We're, we're not here to say, Oh my God. In fact, most of the time we're advocating that, you know, grazing and, and wildlife certainly can coexist. And yes. in cases we use great, we want grazing to improve wildlife habitat. Absolutely. But, I mean, you, you guys have worked with for years and in, in studying that relationship of, of grazing as a disturbance and wildlife response to it. And then in the management side of things, you guys have written contracts with prescribed grazing on rangelands that or public land that you guys manage. And then on the other side, Adam and Chad's farm, well, of course, obviously, they've still got cattle on it, and they need to have cattle on it. Um, my small property here, I'm going to have cattle on it. So it, it's definitely not a, man, we just, we don't like cattle, and it's the pasture just, you know, there's there's no room for this mixing back and forth. That's that's very, I, honestly, that's just the, the complete opposite side of the spectrum where we fall. But I think it's important to make that distinction because... I just hear it and see it so much from from the hunting community that that you think that they can't coexist on the same property and still have value. Um, that's just that's just not necessarily the case. Yep, that's right. And there, you know, we're there's always going to be a give and take, right? Mm-hmm. So so having some cattle, and that's why we're going to go through the pros and cons today. Um, we're going to talk about pasture land. There there are some cons, absolutely. You you may not be able to absolutely trick it out to the Cadillac deer farm that you could without mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the pasture and the, and the grazing happening, but that's okay. If, if that's the situation, let's make the best of it. So, right. I don't know. Well, let's get into some of the, you know, the positives, some of the pros of, of having, and this would be, Oh, we can kind of jump back and forth, but a lot of this would be regardless of whether it's a native or non-native, um, just pasture in general. Um, yep. One thing that that jumps out to me is is typically uh, more so in in native pasture, but it, it can be a non-native. Typically, we actually can have some deer food out there. Oh yeah. Um, in the fescue world, uh, a lot of folks intercede some red clover. Yep. Um, obviously, in native pasture, then you've got forbs, you've got lots of other stuff that deer will eat. 
Uh, they're not eating the grasses so much, but they're eating all these other things. Mm-hmm. So you get some annual weeds in some of this. It's probably less so with, uh, you know, Bahia grass, Bermuda, some of that. Um, but there are some valuable deer food that kind of comes with pasture in general. Um, so it may not be as maximized as it could be if we were only going for deer food. But again, it, it's still something that we can work with. We can intercede some legumes. We can we can do some different things to to diversify that stand and make it more um, functional for for deer and food. Um, with that, you know, food. There typically, if we have a little bit of diversity in these pastures, and just because of manure deposits and stuff. There's often a fair amount of bugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and especially compared to what you'll get into another day, but the, you know, neonic crop fields are pretty bugless anymore. They're, right. They're not going to supply much for a brood of turkeys to go tromping through the soybean, 200 acre soybean field, because those are neonics treated seeds. Um, but we don't have that typically in a pasture situation. So you see, turkey broods out bugging around uh, you know and picking through the cow pies and and when you see and we're going to get into this in a little bit here too more so but when you have annual weeds and different grazing pressures across a farm and and more legumes like the red and white clover type situations in these pastures with those annual weeds the more bugs you get so you can change the grazing degree potential. Uh, let's say how intense you go with it, and and encourage more bugs, or encourage more annual weeds, or encourage um, maybe a better response of of your um, legumes in a pasture based on timing and how much you graze. So even on a year to year basis, or a month to month, week to week basis, depending on what's happening. You can use cows and their grazing intensity or longevity, their duration in a certain pasture, to yield different responses for whatever wildlife potential you want to bring into that pasture once cows have moved off. And so it think of, with this, that cows can be used as a tool, not to harm, but to actually take a pasture that would otherwise be less desirable to wildlife, but then by grazing it, making it potentially more valuable to wildlife, specifically during the summer months in the form of bugging opportunities. Because when you have the broadleafs and then the weeds and different height structures, it encourages a lot of insect uh, movement in those pastures, foraging, cover, the bugging after, you know, defecation of the cows it could be a pretty happening little area oh absolutely and and you know timing is everything on that um bear just popped popped into my head and i couldn't remember if it was you but it was it was adam and i and Uh we were on a place in iowa yep um and this operation had cattle on a bunch of the acres which was fine and some of the pastures were like "Eh, you know whatever we'll we'll work with this but there's not a it was one of those deals where he's gonna have to Cattle are going to stay part of the operation. No big deal. Yeah. Some of the pastures were kind of, there ain't a whole lot going on there for wildlife, but they're using some of the tree rows and stuff for travel routes. You know, we'll make the best of it. But we, we pop over a hill 
and I'm like, whoa, there's all of a sudden there's two fields that look totally different and they've right. got, they've got scattered clumps of big blue stem and, and all of this stuff had been smooth brome, you know, right. that's been grazed. And there's, there's forbs scattered all around that are thigh high and, and we're up there in like September. Yep. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what happened here? Uh-huh. What, and, how and did you get like, this response? Yeah. And I said, is this part of the grazing? He's like, yeah. And I, and he, I said, so, so what's different? And he's like, well, I don't know. And I said, well, I can tell you what's different. <laughs> so cattle went through this this year and he says, yeah. And I said, okay, let's back up. Were they in there first thing in the spring? Was this one of the first paddocks and they grazed the heck out of it while the cool season, you know, so we're talking April, May. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. And then they moved to this next pasture over here. And I'm like, bingo. So you actually used the cows mm-hmm. unintentionally mm-hmm. and pounded that non-native cool season. And it released all this good stuff during the summer, the hot months. Yes. So it was completely changing the plant composition. The same thing we do with glyphosate in those situations sure. uh, where we're not grazing. This, it just happened with cattle. So it hadn't registered in his head. You know, he wasn't thinking and he, he didn't nothing against him. He didn't know the plants he was looking at. And, yeah. But I mean, it was like you flipped a switch completely different. And it was all about the timing. The pastures that he grazed in June didn't look like that at all Yeah. because the cows were eating any of the warm season that was trying to come on at the same time. So certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That, Those it, cow. But, but that's a perfect illustration of exactly what we're talking about. Yep. You can, by, by, by selecting or utilizing the cows as a tool, you can change what's growing there, the height and structure. And especially when you are rotating and moving cows throughout different pastures, you give time to rest, you give time for the plant communities that, that now have the ability or the environment to grow. Um, maybe it is. I mean, you, you don't get that response from the native side of things in a cool season pasture, but maybe you get... Um, Maybe you get a better expression of the legumes that are present in the pasture uh, after an intense grazing. They've sprout back faster, or regrow faster, and now you've got a, a, an incredible amount of red clover and white clover during the late spring, early summer months. And that's wonderful deer food. I mean, you think about th- this is, the, I think, important to, to consider for everyone's mindset but take a 40 acre pasture and say it's mixed white and red clover strung throughout it right Um, it's there it's present but it's not just all in one congregated section right that's not typically how a pasture is going to work so compare that then to a half acre clover food plot which has more clover and forage in it the 40 acre pasture or the half acre clover field I'm probably going to say the 40-acre pasture based on size and and the composition of most decent, well-managed pastures. You're probably going to have more actual clover and red, uh, white clover and red clover in that 40-acre field than you do in that other half-acre food plot. But it's just not all combined and and you know clover on clover on clover on clover. It's just spread throughout, and and we have to still see that there's value in there if you have more diverse legumes in your pastures. Um, and, and there are, well, you're going to hear about this story on another podcast, so I won't dwell on it. But last night, Chad 
harvested a, a, a probably a upper 140s deer on on a cattle farm that has no wildlife intended practices or usage on it. Is that the biggest buck in the world? No, it's not. But it's a darn good buck, and it was a fantastic hunt. But this farm, through its cattle practices of rotating, managing pastures, having some additional um, forage options such as uh, alfalfa mixed in with orchard grass and other diverse pastures, there is no shortage of food, and it is a hot ticket right now. And it is 100% a cattle farm. We're just fortunate enough to hunt it. And there's a lot of deer and unbelievable amount of turkeys. So it can happen. We just got to think differently about maybe the way you view pastures and what benefit that they can have to wildlife. Because we're always thinking just food plot, food plot, food plot when it comes to a food situation. But pastures managed appropriately can have a lot of food in them that deer and other wildlife will utilize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that makes a huge difference. And you see that in the evenings, lots of times here in the Midwest, you know, you'll drive by and just see 15 deer scattered out across a, you know, a chunk of pasture. So, right. It's uh, not a, a congregation. Those deer, it's just, no, they're deer in it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think something else important to point yep. out um, that, that grazing in general is a natural disturbance. Sure. Um, we're always trying to replicate natural processes. We, we like native plants. We like the native processes to fire things that created that environment. And we always recommend using those tools. Now, certainly we didn't have cattle, you know, thousands of years ago or even way hundreds of years ago in some parts, but grazing animals were part of, grassland evolution mm-hmm. um, so grazing in general is a natural uh, process a natural disturbance as opposed i'm comparing to let's say i had grasslands and i have the choice of haying or or grazing i'm always going to recommend grazing over haying haying yes. is not natural at all we're removing nutrients off the landscape that's not how we're with cattle soil health wise all this has been documented and proven they're staying there you know they're they're depositing manure, so it's nutrient cycling. It's way more natural process. So yes. I yes. think that's critically important to remember. Um, that now the duration and the stocking rate, and the, <clears throat> you know that's all arguable. Um, the bison moved through, didn't stay. You know they might have really pounded on an area for a few days or weeks, and then they were gone for a year. Um, sure, we can debate that all we want, but. We know that the, you know, Mother Nature wasn't coming in with hay equipment. Well, the Native so. Americans were not coming in with hay equipment. <laughs> and I'm, people need hay. I'm not saying, not trying to knock people that cut hay, but given the choice, this is a natural disturbance. Well, and, I'm going to take it. Specifically for this conversation, it's a really good point to bring up because the very the common thought is well i need a little bit of income it's just pasture um i'll just have someone hay it and then i don't have to mess with cows whatsoever but i have a little bit of income on those fields right so that that's yep. very common in the recreational side of things to see people select that option of haying versus grazing and i know there's a lot of this is this is kind of a con we'll get there in a second 
But when it comes to fences, gates, and all this and that, and, and the interference with wildlife movements, I understand that. But there are a lot of temporary options for fencing. And when you discuss and and have cows on a contractual basis, they don't have to be present the entire year. And so you can still graze during portions of the year and then have that fence taken up and remove polywire um, it is uh, honestly in the last eight ten years seen the usage of electric fences and polywire used way more um, across the entire country and I think that people in the recreational side of things should really probably reconsider from the overall landscape health, what is natural, what is best for the ground, what is best for um, forage. Because when here is the thing, when, when it is hayed, it has clipped the very top um, just above ground level, and that is uniform across the entire field. So all whatever cover was present, gone, and everything, it's really it's a very, let's say, potentially, based on the weather conditions, stressful on the plant itself and the root system that you cannot see what's happening. But it's so uniform across the, the, the entire pasture, the entire field. Um, it's going to look, and I'm air quoting, clean, but, but that's not necessarily what's the healthiest or the best option for the wildlife benefit. So we just need to rethink some of the thought processes and say, maybe I need to be a little bit more open to the grazing system opposed to the haying system in what pastures I do have on some recreational land. Yep, ab- absolutely. It all—it's going to be a different fit for everybody in different uh-huh. places and different situations. But yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, what else you got? So I got one other pro, and if you've got some, throw in here. But uh-huh. one other I want to talk about, and this kind of—I'm going to combine it with a con, and then maybe we'll move to cons. But okay. So one thing I kind of like sometimes about pasture situations is. The, the con being it's big open, right? There's a lot of big open space that's not very secure cover. So you're not going to get a ton of deer movement across just wide open nothing. Right? Yes. On the flip side, we can create that or where tree lines, some of this stuff exists and connects across these pastures, connecting, you know, pieces of timber, pieces of cover. Ooh. We've, yeah. uh, or we let some of that develop. We've written some plans. You and I did oh, one yeah. in Texas where we kind of, yep. uh, were recommending some of it was already developing and let it develop further. And man, you can create kind of these travel corridors. I mean, and you want to talk about massive pinch points. Oh my gosh. Predictable routes. You know, <laughs> yeah. there's, they have one tree row to cross this eighth of a mile open pasture and every deer goes up and down this Absolutely. one tree row. I mean, yeah, those can really be used in your favor. So, um, I, I guess that's a, to me, that's a definite pro that goes with the con of too much openness and not secure, <clears throat> not secure, at least on the deer side. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Um, one of the other pros I want to mention for switching to cons, and this is going to shock some people. But if you bought or you're thinking about buying property, do not underestimate in your searches buying old cattle farms. The the pace, the intensity, the response, 
that you can have if you're not wanting to go into the cattle business and you're just trying to buy a recreational property, but if you are trying to convert or transform and make a wildlife paradise, don't underestimate purchasing an old cattle farm. There is generally, comparatively speaking, to timber ground, which we'll be covering another podcast, but there is way more open ground to those acres. So all we have to do is if it's in a cool season turf type grass or a warm season turf type grass is remove that grass. So, so spray it out and then allow succession to take place. And essentially then you're just working in a <clears throat> two, three, four, five, maybe six year type rotation of managing the plant species that come back. But we know that early successional plants are generally very productive in the form of cover and forage for whitetails and a lot of other game species. So to be able to transform a property fast and get a lot of very high quality plants on the landscape because we have open fields, lots of sunlight, lots of energy transferring into plants that will then be consumed and transferred into deer, we can make very big leaps and bounds on converting pasture ground or old cattle farms into highly productive recreational properties. And I think that it is very common to see people steer clear when the buying process of pastures or old cattle farms and rely heavily on purchasing timber property because they only think the mindset of cover. But and we you can create cover quickly um, in timber as well. But on a large scale, Kyle, what do you think on a cover food basis if you're trying to, if you if you go into the route of buying an old cattle farm versus a um, 100 acre old cattle farm and a 100 acre um, block, contiguous block of, of homogenous timber in a five year span, which is going to have more forage and cover on it typically? Most situations, most landowners, would you say? Oh yeah, the old cattle farm, absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, I've got examples. I spent a lot of time in Kansas, grew up over there. I can show you all kinds of places that fit that description perfectly. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you say, we can spray some stuff out. So it's not only the cover can be created quickly because it doesn't have to be woody cover. Correct. Um, we've got plenty of deer that are will bed down and in herbaceous cover crp fields or whatever right Um, right. so we know security is is they're absolutely comfortable in herbaceous cover just the same as woody and then food i want to take it a step further what you were talking about you know comparing say an old cattle farm to timber well an old cattle farm compared to row crop Mm. either one absolutely most likely there's more seeds there, there's pastures sometimes that have been just sprayed to, to death. Right. But right. there's still typically some native plants, some native seeds in the soil bank that just show up when we start spraying out non-native pastures, say fescue or brome or something. Right. Almost always there's still warm season grasses and some forbs that show up. Whereas a lot of crop ground that's been tilled for years and sprayed for years and we don't farm that and let it go to you know, whatever, and go wild, we don't typically see the natives show up. That's I mean, right. we see native plants show up, but it's horse weeds, it's yeah. 
it is not the higher quality stuff. So you're you're, you're simply yeah. wanting uh, wind dispersal of offsite seeds to come in native wise if you're in that heavy crop area, opposed to spraying it out and it's right there in the seed bank. That's or, right. or you have so, to supplement and buy it. Yeah, you know, on the crop so, side of things. Yeah, that's another reason. Yeah, an old cattle farm, you're probably way better off right off the bat. Um, so yeah, one hundred percent agree. Absolutely. And and a lot of times you can find some of those old cattle farms um in in I wouldn't say disarray, but they're not in functional uh capacity for cattle and therefore the price per acre is very uh doable when it comes to the recreational side of things. So don't discount that um in the whole recreational side of things. Don't shy away from it. There's there's a lot that can be done and a lot that we've done um have great case studies on I mean and I say this very very um confidently. Some of the best farms that we work continually they were old cattle farms. And yeah, and and there and it, I see that across the country. That's not just one location. That's not just Southern Iowa. That is across the country. Some of the best farms and best responses that we see come in the form of transforming old cattle farms. That old scrubby pasture stuff. It doesn't yes. take very long to get to that condition. And Oof. man, there's some deer that slick, you know, slip through there. Oh yeah, and feel really comfortable. And yeah, without it, a doubt. Yeah. So let's be fair though. And let's talk about the cons. What you got? Yeah. And, and of course, there's there's plenty of things that I don't like about whether I'm hunting a cattle farm or just dealing with it. And one we already touched on, there's there's quite a bit of big, wide open, unsecure cover uh-huh. um, with that uh, for, let's say, not just deer. But there's quite a bit of wide open, probably not suitable nesting cover for turkeys. Right, um, right. They, they might be out strutting in it. So it's, it's usable for a month because it's <laughs> yeah. short and open, but probably not going to get a lot of production. Um, so that's definitely some downsides. Um, one, one huge one in the deer hunting world that we've all experienced probably is the cows themselves. Sure. If you're, if you have a situation and you touched on it earlier, you don't have to have cows there year round. And I would prefer that you don't, especially if this is a recreational property and you're trying to make the most out of of deer hunting mm-hmm. but if you do have cattle year-round and they're out there when you're deer hunting especially or turkey hunting i mean oh my how often <laughs> they the whole herd follows you to your stand and then yeah. they all stand around and not that deer and cows won't co-mingle but you don't typically see 10 deer standing you know a few feet from the herd of cattle that, that's right yeah. they'll they'll kind of segregate so when the herd comes over because they're curious or they, you stick the, you know, turkey decoy out there, and the whole herd comes and stands around your turkey decoy. <laughs> uh, yeah. that's t- or or, so or they're just it's a, it's a it's a herd, and they're wild, and you you step foot in the when in the pasture, and the one nosy cow, she gathers up the whole herd, and they're booking it across the other pasture to the other side, but you've created this and drawn attention to whatever it is you're doing. And you've, you've now pushed all those cows across this wide open field. It just, it brings an alertness to the area. So whether, whether you have cows that are um, curious or terrified, it's not the most ideal situation when you're trying to be stealthy, access a stand, circle around on a, on a long beard, gobbling, whatever the case may be, there is this, um, 
conflict that a lot of people have uh, with with cattle. And I think this is where, honestly, this is where a lot of the issue stems from is just the disruption of hunts. But again, no one said that cows have to be there year round. And that's the biggest misconception of having cows on a recreational property. But don't get me wrong, you can still make it work with proper rotational grazing and scheduling and moving cows where you want them. You can avoid the hot areas during the uh, during the fall with cows. Put them on the other side of the farm. If you rotate appropriately, you can you can absolutely still have some cows on a property during a hunting season and not and avoid the conflict if you just move them appropriately or schedule that appropriately. Yep, absolutely. And and with that comes kind of the next con that plays right into it is, you know, changes in yeah. cattle rotation, but then consequently changes deer movements, deer behavior, deer use. Uh, I know Chad suffers this all the time Yeah, on that farm. He hunts a lot is because he doesn't have control over the cattle. Right. Um, and so he's, he's kind of figuring out a buck. He thinks, you know, and man, a couple nights in a row, this has happened. And then they move the cattle into the next paddock and all the deer shift, you know, then it's a 40 spring. acres West or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, I was so close. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a just scramble that, um, to figure it out after that. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, those deer adjusting where they want to be and where they're going based on where the cattle are. The cattle may be eating the, the clover that the deer were eating. So the deer are like, fine, we're going to move over here to where the mm-hmm. cattle aren't eating our clover or whatever the reason is. But that's a common thing that happens. So you're just less, less ability to pattern the deer and stay on them. Um, because it's going to adjust their movements and, and change some of that. Yeah. And well, one of those quick strategies that up there at the farm you just mentioned um, is when there is a pattern, be aggressive. Be overly aggressive no matter the time of the year because it's going to change. And But at the same time, that change in human interaction on the landscape is frequent. So, so they see cow, I mean, they see cows move, they see the farmers daily. Um, and so you can kind of get away with being a little bit more aggressive because you know, at some point I'm not going to be in here in three days for weeks because there's going to be cows in here. Um, so, you know, it's going to change. It kind of gives you that extra, like, man, I'm going to step up to the plate and get where I really need to get and kind of push the envelope. And, um, sometimes it works, but sometimes you can almost play too too subtle um in in a hunting strategy when really the best thing to do is when the deer's on a pattern get in there and go so it's kind of that that back and forth but what's what's another con there well you touched on earlier you know fences and gates and so depending on the fences and the type of fences that can impede wildlife movement uh turkeys for sure but even deer uh, maybe they're going to go cross a fence at a certain spot Um, That can become in your favor. That can Mm -hmm. be a pro, but it certainly lots of times it disrupts where they want to go. Gates, you can direct movement through open gates. Um, You can, how many times have you been hunting and the gate 
you know, you're unhooking that chain, you're trying to be quiet, clink, and you're holding clink, your bow, and you've got all this, st- and then you drop it, and it clanks, <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah or, yeah, or the wind blows the gate open and bangs it against the corner post, yep. you're like, oh, come on, so. Yep, that, uh, more times than I would like to count. Yes, um, <laughs> and turkeys, of course, are terrible, you know, a fence can just completely ruin a turkey hunt. Yeah. You've got him coming on a string, and, and he's crossed that fence you know woven wire is a little different but yep. even barbed wire he's went under that fence you know 42 times this week uh-huh. but now he feels like it's an impediment for some reason That's so exactly he stands right. there and struts on the other side of it at 82 yards and you're yeah. like come on dude uh-huh all we've the time yeah we've all had that so. Just as much as deer and stuff will we'll walk up and down the, the hedgerows and fence rows and corridors um you you still have those those some areas where it just feels like it's an impenetrable wall and um you know at, at the same time though when a top wire breaks on a fence well now you have a pinch point so yep. so fences within their own deal although a lot of times they're they're they are a negative they can be classified as a con when you find a top wire broken something like that Man, now now you've got a really good trail that goes through there, and, and you can hunt it appropriately. But um, generally, there's there's a lot of conflict around that. Um, but with that, I think that kind of leads into another con is regarding fences or gates. If you are going to have cows on your property, just get in the mindset that at some point, they will get out of where they're supposed to be. It's just going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't have cows and and not at some point experience them being somewhere where they shouldn't be at that time frame. It just happens. That's a part of accepting, um, knowing that not everything is going to be, you know, fresh smelling roses or whatever. Like it, it's it's not all perfect. It's not a perfect equation, but. You will get a call, or you will have a trail camera, and you're like, "There's cows there. What? Something happened. A tree fell. Um, maybe, maybe you had a, a lightning strike, and and your fence didn't get hot. It broke the charger, whatever. And yeah, now you're sitting there with cows out on maybe it's a food plot, or maybe it's yeah. in the timber or something. It's like, my gosh, what the heck? But if if you go down the route. Just accept that ahead of time, and if you accept it ahead of time and, and expect it, then you don't really get upset when it happens. It's just a part of a give and take with having cows on a property. They're going to get out. Yeah, I was going to say the first place, 100% guaranteed every time, <laughs> they're going to go to your food plot. Yep, absolutely. It, like, how did they know to walk a straight line? Like, did they just smell that from <laughs> half a mile away? Right. Because uh, that's the first place they show up and they destroy your food. And it'll only happen on the year that you actually had good rain and your food plot looks awesome. Yeah, it's it's, the year, it's the year with no acorns. <laughs> and wonderful yes. fall rains, and you have this beautiful stand, and they're just gonna come in and demolish it. But yes, yes, it just it just is one of those things that again, obviously, no one intends for that to happen, um, but it will happen. And take it and move on with life, and, and and just know that sometimes you go to the farm, and your your activities revolve more around cattle 
than they do around hunting. But if you can, if you can accept and realize that the potential for management of a property includes grazing, then you're still working on your property. And that's what I think a lot of people just miss is they just see it as an income revenue stream or they see it as um, just a straight conflict with hunting. But but there are ways to understand that this is a management tool if done appropriately in the right setting. This can improve the overall property and landscape. Because, my gosh, Cal, you, you look at some of the native pastures and I've seen a lot of... Um, non-native pastures that are very diverse and absolutely full of wildlife on the property itself. I mean, some some of those, yep. there's the prairies of Kansas and the Midwest and the West, very game-rich environments. To, so to say that you cannot have cattle and wildlife coexist is, is obviously just false. We see it all the time, but it has to be done right. Yeah, my absolute best private land quail hunting spots in Kansas are um, grazed native pastures mm-hmm. um, that have just enough, you know, woody growth to have escape cover. You, they don't get overgrazed because you can't. You can't sustain natives for year round if you're year to year if you're overgrazing. So there's plenty of residual cover to get them through the winter. And yep. Anyway, they, they can really go hand in hand. So Absolutely. Yep. I, I think there's a lot of a lot of great additional conversations to 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 have regarding cows. But do you feel like this was encompassing enough? Do you have any other points that you want to hit verse on the on the pros and cons of pasture land on on recreational property? I think we've covered the bulk of of it. Um, I think hopefully people get a good understanding that there's yep. it's a good mix, um, and you will just make the best of it and use it to. You can use it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure, this guy has its place, and we'll we'll make it work. Absolutely, and that says hopefully it's just an it's an opening of the mind for people who who have entertained it, considered it, um, or or honestly, quite frankly, have just like closed the chapter on, on having cows on a recreational property, or said I don't want any pasture. Um, on a recreational property, or they have passed on a recreational property, and they don't know what to do with it. Hopefully, you got some ideas. You saw that there is value in proper management um, and, and understanding of what the potential of those acres could be, how they relate to wildlife, and then the potential conflicts that could come up with that as well. So it's all a working, um, uh, evolving thing. I think on on properties and where landowners will will fall into the spectrum of having pastured land, pasture ground on a, on a property, um, but there's like you said, ways to make it work. And I think this is a, a a good understanding of the general pros and cons that a lot of people uh, could f- certainly find themselves in. So appreciate your your time and knowledge. Hey. One more thought here just yeah, yeah. popped in my head, and I think we need to make clear. So we're mainly talking about recreational landowners, right? And that's uh-huh. who we're working with, and, and that's great. But for for overall wildlife habitat across the United States, if we don't figure out ways, you know, most of it's privately owned stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If we don't figure out ways to incorporate working farms whether it's row crop or working cattle farms into 
weaved into wildlife habitat management, we're never going to win these battles of the declining turkey populations, the declining bobwhite. So this is paramount in that puzzle to weave together. We don't want to, you know, demonize cattlemen by any means. Right, Um, right, right. We've got to figure out ways to work with folks. Great point. And say, hey, we can get, we can get a little of both out of this um, because these these wildlife populations that are struggling are never going to make it if we can't do it on working farms. Absolutely. I mean, the, the most privately held land across the country are working working properties. They're not yep. recreational properties, although there is an increase and a rise in the recreational land owner still don't trump the working lands and, and the number of acres devoted to that. So, finding that middle ground, finding the overlap, um, and really using it to the advantage for wildlife is a hundred percent should be a goal in everyone's mind. So wonderful, wonderful point. I'm glad, I'm glad you did bring that up. Um, it's super important to, to make clear. So, um, any other wonderful points you want to bring in? No, oh, I think I'm out of them for today. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thank you, sir. Um, I hope everyone, uh, Enjoyed the podcast. Be paying attention to the feed because um, there's going to be more of these pros and cons uh, podcasts coming up. And, and again, I think there's some some revelations to be had for a lot of people who are um, either existing landowners or or people who are considering purchasing land. Um, keep keep an open mind, and uh, we're going to cover the topics and give you guys the the nuts and bolts of uh, the general classes that you might see um, a land marketed um, or, or presented to you in. So you got to know the value, um, where it lies, where it does not lie, to make the most informed decision on buying properties. So, guys, hopefully, like I said, you enjoyed it. Maybe your season's opening up this week, or maybe you're still scouting mode. Whatever you do, just enjoy it. Get outside, have fun, and um, we'll catch you guys here next week. Thank you.